0: The question is, are you here? And the answer is, well, optional. But we thank you for listening to this episode of the Paul Leslie Hour, and we're featuring an interview with the late Ike Stubblefield, who was known to many as a master of the Hammond B3 and other keyboards. Ike Stubblefield performed on stage with so many great artists. George Benson, B.B. King, the Four Tops, Eric Clapton, Ike and Tina Turner, the Derek Trucks Man, the Jerry Garcia Band, and so many others. He was an incredible musician. You know, it's kind of funny how the interviewer, Paul E. Leslie, met Ike Stubblefield. One New Year's Eve, Ike stopped Paul on the street, just outside the Fox Theater, and why? Well, who knows? Maybe he thought Paul looked funny. You just never can tell. Anyway, they struck up a conversation, and it felt so natural that the idea to do an interview soon came up. Well, they recorded this interview at the now-defunct Sambuca Jazz Cafe in Atlanta. Then, it was a very sad day when we learned Ike Stubblefield had passed away back in 2021. Ike had a lot of friends, and for anyone who ever saw him work and perform, oh, it was quite an experience. You know, it's our passion to keep interviews like these available to you and to the masses. We've been going for 19 years and counting, but we want to double our YouTube audience before we hit 20. So go to YouTube, subscribe, it's free. Look up the Paul Leslie. Hit subscribe and bing, bing, ring that bell. Well, now we take you to that interview with Ike Stubblefield, recorded back in the early days of this show. We thank you very much for listening, folks. And remember, make the most of every day. It is
1: our pleasure to announce the famed master of the Hammond B-3 organ, Mr. Ike Stubblefield. So thank you so much for joining us.
2: Well, thanks for having me.
1: You have an amazing history. There's <laughs> going to be a lot to go over, but I think most stories are best from the beginning. So given the fact that your sister took piano lessons.
2: Yeah, at the uh, age, I believe, seven, and I was actually about three three years old during that time, and... Uh, it was quite interesting because, uh, you know, she'd have her lesson and uh, get up from her lesson with the teacher. And I, I would crawl up on the piano bench and start playing her lesson, watching her them leave, not even looking at the keyboard. So they knew something was up then. <laughs> it was fun for me back then until it you know, got serious, of course, later on.
1: Did you grow up in an exceptionally musical household?
2: I would have to say, yeah. Uh, my my mom was a trumpet player in a big band in Chicago when she was in her teens and, and of course got married and went into family life. And I had cousins that were all into music and stuff, Clyde Stubblefield drummer with James Brown and let's see, Philip Church is also a relative. So I mean I, I had a lot of influences around me as a kid growing up. So it was it was all educational.
1: When you were growing up, what kinds of music did you like listening to? Oh, boy.
2: <laughs> I was all over the place. When I got around, uh, or around 12, 13 years old, I, I was listening to Frank Zappa. I listened to, of course, Motown, Miles Davis, wow. all, all the jazz stuff, R- R&B, wow. blues, B.B. B. B. King. Uh, actually, I played with B.B. King when I was about 14.
1: It's not everyone that gets to play with B.B. King when they're 14. How did that happen?
2: Well, he came to uh, Toledo, Ohio, my hometown. His organ player got sick, so uh, he heard about me, and and I uh, went over and just uh, rehearsed with him before the show, and that was history. He just said, hey, we need to do some gigs, so I went out with him for about three or four weeks. But at that time, I was also rehearsing at Motown Review in Detroit, so uh, I wanted to... uh, Keep that obligation because that was more of a pocket where I was at at that time. But even at rehearsals with Motown, I I would go to the east side of Detroit after rehearsal and sit in with MC5 and Iggy Pop (laughs) and rock out. (laughs) And then after that, go to the jazz club and play jazz behind B3 organ. So uh, like I said, I was all over the place musically, even at 14. So kind of really screwed my whole thing up. (laughs) <laughs> Nobody knew where I was coming from.
1: How did you discover the organ?
2: Well, many B3 organs are, have been around since the early 50s. So, and of course, it was basically used in the church, even to this day. It's it's a main staple for gospel music and thing. So but back in the 60s, it filtered into rock and roll and pop and with Motown. I didn't use. There was no B3 on Motown records basically it was all from and piano and stuff so I mean basically with Motown I played you know keyboards a lot of people don't realize that I do play keyboards <laughs> it's not just organ being versatile that way because I ended up going to England and I was w- working with Rob Stewart on some gigs that's where I met Eric Clapton for the first time It's a story behind that as well, but I won't get into detail right now.
1: What was the music scene like in England?
2: I love the music scene in England because there's its its own music scene. It's not like any other music scene in, in the world. I mean, of course, everybody wanted to come over to the States and, you know, they had idols here in the States that they were trying to perform like. And, but at the same time, they had their own individuality. And in England, it's more of a lifestyle. Music's more of a lifestyle opposed to a, a fad. The kids are around it. It's more of a traditional thing for the, for musicians over there. And back in the day, then it was it was much easier for musicians to communicate and work together. How should I say? It was more of a family sort of thing.
1: Given that the Hammond B3 organ is associated with church music, I was wondering if Christian music or gospels or spirituals was an influence on your formative uh, years?
2: Well, of course, yeah. I think that was an influence on most most musicians and organ players because it was a freedom of style, and most of that came from blues. Blues came from gospel, and then jazz came from blues. So, I mean, it 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 was all connected. And I played by ear, so it it was just feeling what's going on around me was uh, basically how I played. When you were growing
1: up, did you always know that you wanted to be a musician?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let's see. I was 12 years old, and I knew I wanted a Hammond B3 organ from a family of seven kids, two sets of twins. I have a twin brother, (laughs) five girls, two boys. Pretty big family for that back in the day. And basically, I told them that I wanted a Hammond B3 organ for Christmas. (laughs) I told them that in June. And I, I said, I'm not speaking to anybody until I get it. <laughs> so right around October, after I didn't say anything to anybody, a word, I just didn't a silent treatment, I found out that they were looking for one. And sure enough, they, they got me one. <laughs> so uh, after that, I was gone. Once I had my toy, my instrument, then uh, I was going to hit the road. Do you remember
1: the first time music wasn't just playing for the love of it, but playing for your first paying gig?
2: Well, that was never, as a kid, that was never really a priority, because I was just so happy to play. I didn't, you know, but being around musicians 10, 15 years older than me, being 14, they were all like 24, 25, 30, and they were already into the business part of it. So I, I learned that end of it pretty early. That. And coming from a Business family. My uncle actually has Stubbs barbecue sauce. It's called Stubbs. So I mean, all in my family, there was always like a business sense. I had to get paid. Yeah. You know?
1: <laughs> Might as well be something you love.
2: All I've ever done was music. I've never worked for anybody else. Always been self-employed. So in that case, if you don't get it done, it doesn't get done. You don't get paid. So, but it's also uh, important to have a good team together because you can't win by yourself. And a lot of a lot of musicians, even today, think that they can do everything themselves. Without you know, it's like going against the 49ers to try to get a, a touchdown by yourself. They're not going to let you do it. They might have fun on the way, let you get close, and then bang, you're down. <laughs> so, uh, unless you got a good team, it's it's hard to hard to win.
1: Seems like any type of journey you take or anything you, you accomplish, there's always going to be someone that that you that you look back to that helped you. I was wondering about when you started playing with, like, the Motown Review greats. Was there any person in particular that maybe served as a mentor to you?
2: I would say Pistol Allen. Uh, He's a drummer. I'm in love with tracks. James James Jameson, bass player. I liked his way he kept the groove going. Kind of adapted that with my bass lines. Barry Gordy was a close friend of mine, too. So just the business sense of how he established product and created this empire with uh, new music was always an influence.
1: You were mentioning uh, about the fact that you also played the drums. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, in addition to the piano, before you st- you had started the, the Hammond organ, were there any other instruments that you played?
2: played the... Uh, saxophone in high school junior high school and, and a little bit in high school didn't read a lick basically it was it was all by by ear until one day we had new music and i think it was like in a snowstorm in january in ohio and uh the first alto saxophone player didn't show up because it was sick got new music and uh they put the music up in front of me and i didn't have a clue what, what to play and as uh, I said, well, John's not here, so I, mean, I play off of whatever he plays. <laughs> so at that point, they just gave me A's and said, okay, not a problem. <laughs> so saxophone, of course, bass was easy, you know, the four strings. Guitar is always a heart. Those other two strings always got me. I could never get the hang of it. So, so yeah, there's a few instruments that I can pick up and, and hang with. <laughs>
1: Is there anyone that you've played with that you almost couldn't believe you were playing with them or you couldn't believe you were recording on their album? Just as an outside eyes, when I look at the list of people you played with.
2: It'd have to be uh, not too many because as I got older, I was playing with quite a few different artists. Uh, One of my idols growing up, I got the chance to join his band and play two shows before he passed away, and that was Frank Zappa. Really? Yeah. Uh, so that that was probably my highlight. George Dukes is a good friend of mine. I met Frank through him. Jerry Garcia band. I used to play with Jerry back in 63 in San Francisco. I moved to San Francisco in uh, 1970. Jerry Garcia had his own band. Merle Sanders was, was basically playing with Jerry's band. And when Merle couldn't make it, then uh, Jerry would call me. It was a little bit of, jealousy there because Jerry really liked my style, but you know, Merle was part of that whole that whole gig. But uh the whole San Francisco scene in the seventies was like a, a turning point for me because it was a whole different scene out in, in San Francisco right around that time. It was the end of the Dave Ashbury days, it was starting to get electric flag, Buddy Miles, Herbie Rich, The Fifth Day, a lot of groups back in those days. I, I played with everybody, just kind of you know, like I said, everybody played together, sat in and jammed and lived together and did that whole San Francisco thing.
1: What was your impression, your personal opinion on Jerry Garcia when you met him?
2: He was, he was very down to earth with me. I just respected you know, his, his talent and, and his, his whole charisma. That was the main thing. His charisma was so magical. Sort of like Colonel Bruce. <laughs> you know, he's got you know, that character that you just have to, wow, This this guy is Amazing. How did you come up with this?
1: As far as organ players, who has been your biggest influence as an organist?
2: Keith Emerson was, was uh, a good influence. Jack McDuff, Groove Holmes, Larry Young. I wasn't that into Jimmy Smith as much as those. I mean, a lot of his stuff sounded to me back then the same. You know, there was a lot of licks and this and that, but I mean his technique was great. But the other guys had, had a feel to them, uh, more of a groove type of thing. I can relate to that a little more.
1: It's just as far as musicians in general or just in music, has there been any particular type of music given the fact that you played on so many different styles of things, not just one type? Like most musicians you meet, they play their one genre of music and that's right. it. Exactly. is there any type of music that you've found you're especially passionate about
2: well I would have to say my own <laughs> because at this point my you know it's I played everything else so I mean I listen to basically classical and choral music when I'm at home uh, I don't even listen to what the radio or what my competition might be if I'm recording uh, living around the world I mean there's all kinds of different styles of of culture and music that that, uh, I really enjoy because it's not the mainstream. And virtually, it helps me to to be unique in my attack on being creative.
1: Given the fact that you've moved around so much, were you at all intimidated to just go into an area and...
2: Never intimidated.
1: Never intimidated. (laughs) No. Because it seems like you'd have to kind of start over to make the contacts, to meet the people at the clubs, and to play with all these bands.
2: No, I've never had any, you know, because I, I you know, as a kid starting out, I, I had to just go up and and come to the plate. So uh, I was taught there's no such thing as a mistake. So I never worried about if I knew what they were doing. All I needed to know was what key you're in and let's go. You know, it's more important to know where not to play than it is to know where to play. And that's a hard task to keep in mind when you're when you just. Going into a situation you're not sure of, you can't learn by talking, you learn by listening.
1: Like the old saying that God gave you two ears.
2: Right. Yeah. (laughs) Aside from
1: your music, you've also had a hand in a few music venues.
2: Yeah, I have ventured off into um, having some jazz clubs and supper clubs. I started one in Vancouver called the Green Onion in uh, Gastown. Eventually I went back to Ohio and having experience from Vancouver, I wanted to put something back in my hometown. So I started a supper club called Yikes Supper Club. And that's how I felt when I was getting into it because it was actually my own money and everything. And so I said, Yikes, what am I getting myself into? I said, I'll just call it Yikes. I had no idea that my name was in in Ike, was in Ike, Yikes, you know, Y-I-K-E-S. And uh that went really well. I had some major artists come through because of by then I already had connections with a lot of artists. So a lot of people in, traveling from the East Coast, coming through Cleveland to Detroit or Chicago, had to come through Toledo. So I would catch in, in between the sh- shows or in between their days when they had dead days. And, and they would come in and actually play for very little. So it worked really well. And uh then I moved down to Atlanta. And I started a place called The Blue Room in Peace Street Battle Shopping Center. I said, this you know, this city needs a Hammond B3 organ room that, that's dedicated to Hammond B3 organ. So that's kind of what happened here in Atlanta with the, with the club scene.
1: What drew you to Atlanta?
2: It just happened to be one city that I never really spent any time in uh, outside of touring. And then the next day I was gone. So once I was here, I kind of really liked the, the musicianship and the, the whole feel of everything. Meeting Jeff Sipe and Colonel Bruce and those guys, Ricky Keller, just kind of uh, was opening up doors that I hadn't felt like since uh, back in San Francisco. So that kind of uh, really kept me here. felt at home. Tell us about Is Not Was. Is Not Was. Ah. Yes, Is Not Was. <laughs> yeah, that was a group uh, I started up in Toledo. That was an interesting group. It was a guitar player named Leon Cook who was with Jack McDuff and Groove Holmes. He's pretty good vocal, great vocalist and really good guitarist. Percussionist was uh, Tony Ben, who, who won a, a Grammy with Taste of Honey. He was with the, that group. Leon son was, was just getting into playing. So the whole feel with that was great. And we recorded one album. Uh, did pretty well with it. Won a, a regional uh, People's Choice Award for that CD. So, but it was a pretty magical group. Who here in
1: the Atlanta, or actually the whole state of Georgia, the music scene here, would you have to say has been one of the uh, more impressive acts?
2: Well, Colonel Bruce has a has a gift for, for putting great musicians together. So I respect all, all of what he's done. I don't get out much as far as if I'm not performing, I kind of, kind of stay in. Derek Trucks Band, all those guys are friend of, friends of mine. and. I play with young Rico Scott and his band sometimes. It's a lot of extremely talented musicians in Atlanta. I just wish that they, they were more supportive of each other as a music scene, like I did in Detroit. I mean I'm I'm over at Cafe two ninety playing jazz, of so smooth jazz with cats, and then I'm over playing with Colonel Bruce and then I'm doing my thing, which is, you know, kind of everything. So uh I'm basically in the clique of all of them, so when I'm playing, then people get come together to come hear me or sit in, and they don't even see each other for years until they come out and hear me. I'm trying to establish that old school of, of working together. The Blue Room was helping doing that as well because uh it was a musician's place to play. I mean, it was run, ran by a musician, and musicians were treated the way they were supposed to be in in a, in a club so There it is.
1: What model Hammond and Leslie speakers are you using today, and are there any other keyboards that you are fond of playing?
2: Well, I own uh, to this day, nine Hammond B3 organs. They're all 1973s. That's my uh, niche. I think that's the best year for for my sound. Uh, About 18 Leslie's. And I have them scattered all over the world. (laughs) I keep one in Germany, one in England, one in the West Coast, one on the East Coast, one up in the, my hometown, Toledo, and one down here, and the rest are in storage. Basically, so I don't have to be uh, at the mercy of a rental organ if I'm traveling, I know exactly what I'm going to be playing. And any keyboard, per se, I mean, I'm pretty versatile with, you know, Fender Rhodes and, and Tritons, and they're all the same to me. I mean, the real thing is, you know, b 3 all the natural-sounding instruments, like real Fender Rhodes, we can't beat those sounds. And Everything else is synthesized, actually.
1: There are a couple of acts that feature organs. The one that comes to mind, like, for example, Greg Ullman. But it doesn't seem to be as prominent of an instrument as compared to other keyboards. Why do you think that is? Because well, it's, it's such just, a wonderful sound.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's a big instrument, too. So, I mean, a lot of people just don't have a way of, of transporting it. I think that's the main issue. And it is an older instrument, so the maintenance on it, it has to be kept up. You know, if something breaks, then you have to know where to re- really go to get that, the parts for it. So it's easier and more convenient for people to, to use uh, corgs or whatever. You know. But, of course, the sound's not going to ever be the same. and It's rich. And a, lo- a lot of organ players... Come from playing piano, so they don't really know the the, the whole technique of drawbars and harmonics. Oh, and I mean, Hammond B three organ is amazing instrument. You yeah, I mean, it's so versatile; you can make it sound like anything.
1: There's a band called the Code Talkers, mm-hmm. and they have a song that they paid their tribute to you. Yeah, and the, <laughs> <laughs> they did. I was wondering if you can tell us about the song.
2: Well, basically, I was living in Sandy Springs. I was invited to come down to the Brandy House to sit in with Jeff Slipe on drums, Adam Nitty on bass, and Steve Cunningham. You know, being from the kind of school I am, I I said, I'll be there. I only lived about four blocks away, uh, and it's all downhill to the Brandy House on Roswell Road. My transportation bailed out at the last minute, so I said, well, I was in New York, and uh, there was a place only four blocks away. People just will close down the, the streets to get there. So I, I put my dolly on my on my organ and rolled it out the door and rolled it down Roswell because it's all downhill. Pushed it down by hand in, in the middle of the street on the, on the on the side where the on the left-hand side where the cars were coming toward me. Everyone was stopping looking, and you know I would just. Sit, I just w- waved to him and said, hi. <laughs> got to the Brandy house and rolled it in. Then walked back and got my Leslie and did the same thing with that. on a dolly. And I was there. Boy, the word on that spread all over the city like a wildfire. And, of course, I have a, a parrot named Stanley, and uh, he counts off songs and stuff like that and talks a lot. So, so all those lyrics in that song happen to be true. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. Sits on my shoulder and screams. So
1: when you're not playing the organ or recording, what kinds of things do you like to do?
2: Well, I used to be pretty active uh, from living in London. I used to play polo a lot and uh, tennis. Uh, my bones won't let me do that anymore. Uh, i getting older. I don't know. I like just relaxing when I'm not, when I'm not being creative. And Atlanta is more a city where I, where I do that. I, I'm a more uh, creative here and into business. I have a house in Barcelona and a house in Palm Springs. So when I'm in Barcelona, I'm either on tour in Europe and then I just go there to relax. But Palm Springs, is more like for retirement. Go there and just look up at the desert sky and sit in my hot tub. My so basically, uh, I try to have a good balance of uh, where I'm at. And right now, I'm in the middle of two records. Uh, When I'm in Atlanta, I'm pretty much a workaholic. Get all that out of the way, then I I rest up for about a year. I think I'm about ready to do that here in Atlanta after I finish these two records. I'm going to probably disappear for maybe a a year or so. Just kind of cool out and let the record do what it's going to do. I haven't decided yet.
1: So tell us about the records.
2: Well, one's pretty much uh, kind of geared toward the jam band scenes, more funk-oriented B3 trio. Jeff Seif will be on it. Bernard Purdy's on it. Steve Gadd's on it. Grant Green, Jr., who I moved down here from New York, he's my roommate, he's on it. And uh, one of the albums is kind of geared toward smooth jazz market, but totally different than what you hear on the radio, more B3, old-school sort of groove. Oriented. I just finished a song dedicated to Joe Zavina. I brought some pals along to help do that, and it's come along really good. Tree Sound has been very supportive, helped me record as well. And I also have a recording studio in my, my home, so it's, it's never a problem recording.
1: The first time I met you, we were walking down the street outside of the Fox Theater, and you were about to play with the Derek Trucks band. I was wondering how you met Derek. And what's your impression of Derek Trucks?
2: Oh, he's amazing. Amazing talent. And super nice guy, too. I mean, I, I, his whole family. His younger brother just moved to Atlanta, and uh, I just felt compelled to help him out as much as possible. with Like I was helped when I was a kid, getting started. He just graduated from high school. and. Der's gosh, I don't know what to say. He's just just a genius when it comes to understanding his instrument and technique and everything.
1: Tell us about the winter tour you did with Eric Clapton when you filled in for Billy Preston.:
2: That was in uh, uh, Paris before I came back to the States, and Billy got sick, called me to fill in for him. I had walking pneumonia and didn't even know it, and uh, I had to go in the hospital in Paris. Consequently, felt that for me to survive, I needed to get back to the States. So I saw the Air France flight back to Atlanta. And uh, then they found uh, lymphoma that was feeding the pneumonia. They almost didn't make it out of that. So I uh, had a bone marrow transplant and all that over at Emory. I was down for a bit. But I had a recording studio brought in the, my, hotel, my uh, hospital room and uh, got through it. Like, in flying colors. Got great insurance. That's one thing that my, my folks made me take care of when I was a kid. So, you're going to need it later. So, uh, so that really saved me from, from having a lot of major hospital bills. But in any event, I got out of that and went right on stage. As soon as I checked out of the hospital, I uh, went right on stage. Literally, I didn't even go home. And, wow. Uh, and sit by an organ at Fat matz. Some friends of mine were playing. It's on a Sunday. And uh sat in and played three songs and went home. Music's an amazing healer. Would you rather record or perform in front of a live audience? That's a good question. I, I had my moments. I mean, I, I was never into being an artist because I grew up around it and I, I saw how much work and how much trouble it can be just dealing with being on the road and tours and musicians and so I have my moments when I, I want to get out there and, and, and just perform, but I, I prefer the other side of it, which is writing and producing. Uh, I learned that a long time ago where I could just walk out my door and go to my mailbox and get paid <laughs> <laughs> with royalties. And Of course, that allows me to take the time to, to, to do what I want to do musically and be more picky about you know, where I want to live and, and how I want to pursue my next step. Are
1: you a religious man?
2: I'm very extremely spiritual. I don't particularly believe in organized religion, but spiritually, yes. Very, very, very Muslim. Do you think that God made music or man made music? God means spirit. I I believe actually a combination of both. Music's been around much longer than man.
1: That's interesting given that you know, music isn't always created by an instrument.
2: No, I mean, the wind can can sing you a song and put you to sleep.
1: Is there anything that you hope people get out of hearing you play, whether it's on a recording or whether they go out and hear you at a club or at a concert? What is it that you hope that the listeners get out of the experience?
2: Well, each listener is going to get their own individual feel. You know, hopefully they're all happy and into it. <laughs> I can't please everyone, but at the same time, that's the goal is to, you know, even being in the music business, to bring a smile and make people happy. If I feel like I've done that, then I've done my bit.
1: Other than the recordings, is there anything else that you're working on, or is there anything on the horizons?
2: I also do scores for movies, helping other artists develop production. And I'm all about putting back in the system. Trying to keep a balance between the negative and the positive. It takes a lot of work to keep your integrity. It doesn't take any work at all to be a jerk and not keep your word. And it's a lot of that going on with the younger kids today because they they just don't know about integrity. I mean, if this country had a blackout, nationwide blackout with electricity for five days, everybody would just go into a tote. They wouldn't know how to survive. It's true. It's amazing how much they're dependent on outside sources to feel like they can be whole. But that's an old school thing, too. <laughs> i have giving my age away. <laughs> well, I have one last question. Given that this broadcast is
1: going to be going out all over the world, what would you, Mr. Ike Stubblefield, like to say
2: to the world? Get rid of Bush. <laughs> <laughs> That would be a good start, I think. <laughs> Wade's on its way out, anyway. But n- living all over the world, I see different countries that uh, they all have their positive and negative forte. I would like to say, I think that if we all stick together and support music as a whole, I think that it will be uh, something that can get us out of the uh, depression that most of us are in. And like I said, it's a great healer. We start to lose lose our humanity when we don't support and keep that part of our lives in place. Well,
1: Mr. Stubblefield, thank you so much for making the time to do this, and giving us a wonderful interview. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it, but I have one more serious question. Oh, boy. <laughs> what is your all-time favorite meal?
2: My all-time favorite meal. Boy, you're full of hard questions today. <laughs> Uh, My all-time favorite meal would have to be Fat (laughs) mats.
1: That's probably the hardest question I asked. Well, again, Mr. Stubblefield, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Well, thank you. Thank you. And we hope to have you on again.
0: Uh, We'll certainly work on that. All right. Thank you. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, The Entertainer, written by Scott Joplin.